You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. Is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. No one. Everyone. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. In Los Angeles, we've been out of lockdown for several days, which has been interesting. Great, because it's been a real long time, and it's real strange seeing the bottom of strangers' faces again. Anyway, on to the stuff. For this week's two-sentence movie reviews of movies I saw in a movie theater, we've got The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. This film is the sequel to The Hitman's Bodyguard, and if you liked that one, sure, you'll like this one too. This film has the same issue that all of these comedy espionage movies have, in that it doesn't know what it wants to be, and generally speaking, all of these films are usually pretty bad. This one is not great. Ryan Reynolds, Samuel Jackson, and Selma Hayek are all great in it, but it's just not a good movie. Also, why are there so many comedy spy movies that have come out in like the last 10 years or so? Like there's a lot of them, right? Anyway, on to this week's topic. This week, we're covering the life of an actor who was beloved by scores of young admirers in his youth but whom was essentially forgotten when he made the transition from child actor to adult actor. Jonathan Brandis was a former teen heartthrob, the star of dozens of films and television shows. But for some reason, when he reached his 20s, Hollywood turned its back on him. Today, we take a look at the life of Jonathan Brandis, which, like all too many, was cut tragically short. Despite the height of popularity this young man once had, no full-form biographies or documentaries have ever been written or made about him. So to accumulate the information amassed in this episode and to write it and make it coherent was quite a challenging right in a completely different way than last week's episode was. I've done my best to get as much information about him as I can in order to give you a glimpse into this talented young actor because I think it's just as important to remember the icons of cinema with scores of films to their name as well as those who didn't get the chance to do that. As a result, this episode will be a touch shorter than others, but it didn't feel right to do a double feature this time. As a warning, this episode will deal with suicide and suicidal ideations. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime.
April 13, 1976, in Danbury, Connecticut, Jonathan Gregory Brandis entered the world, the only child of Mary, a teacher and personal manager, and Gregory, a food distributor and firefighter. Jonathan's professional career began at a young age, starting as a model for Buster Brown Shoes. Buster Brown was a popular cartoon series at the turn of the 20th century, which has spawned this shoe brand that had been rehashed a few times over the years. This ad led to slews of other commercials for Jonathan, including ones for Fisher-Price toys and Kick cereal. At the tender age of six, with his cherubic face, dark blonde hair, and piercing blue eyes, Jonathan landed the role of Kevin Buchanan on popular television soap One Life to Live. Jonathan was the third actor to portray Kevin, the first son of series protagonists Victoria Lord and Joe Riley. Jonathan and his mother would travel between Connecticut to New York City so he could shoot his scenes. Jonathan would play Kevin for one year before the part was recast for the fourth time. With the soap and several other bit screen credits under Jonathan's belt, the Brandis family moved to Los Angeles in 1985. This initial move was likely during the time in L.A. known as pilot season, which is a period from like late January to April where the studios and networks create pilots, the first episode of a television show that serves kind of like a proof of concept for the powers that be that are going to end up throwing the money at this hypothetical show. That's why when you watch a TV show, the first one's always called pilot because it was the pilot. Also, if you've ever wondered why people look a little different between the first episode of a show to the second and then for the rest of the show, it's because the first, the pilot episode, was likely shot months before the rest of the season. Actors from all over the world descend upon Los Angeles during this time in the hopes of landing a part on a TV show. Jonathan's mother became his manager while his father bought a food distributorship to support the family. Lucky for young Jonathan, he was successful in landing gigs initially. Guest roles for the young actor included Parts on Blossom, L.A. Law, Who's the Boss, Murder, She Wrote, Full House, and The Wonder Years. On the film side of things, because this is a film podcast, Jonathan's first film credit was providing additional voices in the 1988 Disney animated film Oliver and Company. He also provided one of the opening voiceovers for the 1989 film Pet Cemetery. If you've seen it, Jonathan voiced one of the disembodied young kids saying goodbye to his pet as creepy close-ups of the Pet Cemetery are shown. Jonathan's first physical film role was in 1988's The Wrong Guys, in which he played the younger version of Tim, who grows up to be a, quote, surfer dude. While the film was widely ignored and terribly reviewed, it was a start. Jonathan's break into bigger roles began five years after the family moved to Los Angeles, when he was cast in the role of Bastion Bucks in The NeverEnding Story 2, The Next Chapter, which released in 1990. For you younger millennials like me, this was probably the first place you saw him. And it was probably when it was on Disney Channel, because like in the mid-noughts, Disney loved to play the NeverEnding Story films. Once again, with NeverEnding Story, Jonathan was taking over a role from another actor. Barrett Oliver had played Bastion in the first NeverEnding Story. In this second film, Bastion is once again transported into the world of the NeverEnding Story, reuniting with former allies to face a new foe. 
1990 was also the year Jonathan starred as young, stuttering Bill Denborough in the miniseries Stephen King's It. Bill serves as the leader of the Losers Club, who battle a demonic clown for the soul of their hometown and everyone in it. While both of these projects were pretty high profile and Jonathan's performance in It was lauded by critics, this work didn't give Jonathan the career bump it should have. But he was still on the radar, waiting for his next shot. The 21st century. Mankind has colonized the last unexplored region on Earth, the ocean. As captain of the Sequest and its crew, we are its guardians. For beneath the surface lies the future. If you were ever a teenage girl, you likely remember the heartthrob magazines that were popular from the 1940s until pretty much the advent of social media. They were called things like Tiger Beat, 17, and J14, and they were all full of pictures and fluffy articles about young celebrities that the youths of the day idolized. Jonathan Brandis was on the radar of these publications starting around 1992 when he had a small write-up while filming the 1992 film Ladybugs. The film starred Rodney Dangerfield, but Jonathan stole the show as a young boy masquerading as a female soccer player to help the team win more matches. Soon after the release of this film, which was very popular in the teen girl market, Jonathan went from a small write-up to a full-blown cover boy for the teen magazines. Jonathan's next big role came in the form of Sequest DSV, a show produced by none other than Steven Spielberg. Jonathan was about 17 when he was cast as Lucas Wollenzak, a 17-year-old child prodigy who serves as a crew member on a high-tech submarine. This role further catapulted Jonathan into teen star status. He had that swooped back hair that all the teen stars have and those big blue eyes, like just just natural like teen fodder dreamboat. At the height of his popularity, he was receiving approximately 4,000 fan letters a week and had to be escorted onto the set of Sequest DSV by three studio security guards because of the many female fans present just to get a glimpse at this dude. Jonathan would play the role as one of the only two actors who had main roles for all three seasons. The role was not a dream job for the young actor, and he found shooting on the opposite side of the country from the rest of his friends back in Los Angeles difficult. When a TV series ends, it can be difficult for actors to procure further work, especially if they've been on a popular TV show, meaning a lot of people have seen their faces, associated with a character. TV shows provide a rare thing in the entertainment world, steady employment. If you're the lead on a television show, especially a popular one, you've got a steady paycheck and your face is in people's homes on the reg. People can't forget you if you're always in their living room. A long-airing show can also pay bills for years to come thanks to something known as residual checks. Playing a character for multiple years can also make it difficult to find new work, as all anyone can see is the character you used to play, and not the one you might become. Jonathan, like so many other former child actors before him, if you listen to this podcast every week, you may recall the difficulties Salminio faced after Rebel Without a Cause, had difficulty procuring work with the profile level that Sequest DSV had. 
He did manage to find work, though it was primarily in supporting roles in television films like Outside Providence and Ride with the Devil, both in 99. And even getting these roles took an extensive amount of effort on his part. Jonathan dyed his hair black to play a drug addict, wore big wire glasses to play a murderer, grew a beard for a western. He was completely unrecognizable, but no one seemed to notice or care about the effort he was putting in, leading to two years without him procuring an acting gig. This is not too unusual in the acting world, but I imagine it's pretty hard to go from the top of the pile to the sales rack, and this was a major blow to Jonathan. Jonathan's last major film role was in a small part in the film Hearts War, starring Bruce Willis in 2002. Jonathan believed that this role would revitalize his career, a second big break, if you will. But unfortunately, much of his role was cut from the final product. Other roles did follow, a pilot of a television show that didn't go anywhere, a role in Puerto Vallarta Squeeze, which would be released posthumously in 2004, in A Cruel Twist of Fate, his role in this film, in which he'd play a CIA hitman opposite Harvey Keitel, was his best showcase of talent in years. Co-star Keitel had been heard saying, quote, This kid is good. This guy's going to have a big career. No matter what your job is in entertainment, sometimes it can be pretty hard to find work when a job ends, especially if there's a pandemic. But with acting, it can be damn near impossible unless you're one of the big, big household names. Sometimes not even then. For some reason, the more credits you have can sometimes make you unemployable versus the new kid who just got there, the fresh face. Sometimes they're just more appealing to casting people than the already established talent. Tinseltown is far more disappointing than it ever is rewarding. And people from the outside don't really get to see this because they really only get regular access to the ones that made it. For everyone Brad Pitt or Meryl Streep, there are at least a thousand like them who didn't come even close. Unfortunately, Jonathan Brandis was slowly becoming one of the 1,000. Just think about the amount of competition he had. The early 1990s was rife with other teen heartthrob actors, and he had to compete for these roles with the likes of Leonardo DiCaprio, Macaulay Culkin, Brad Renfro, Brian Austin Green, Corey Haim, River Phoenix, Edward Furlong, and Jonathan Taylor Thomas. If you include Jonathan Brandis, out of those nine names I just mentioned, only Leonardo DiCaprio has had a steady long-term film or TV career since his entry on the scene in the 90s. Three of the people I just mentioned died before the age of 40. Of that three, two were under the age of 30. Despite Jonathan's former popularity and his clear talent, for whatever reason, in the early 2000s, the roles completely dried up for the 27-year-olds. He wasn't as popular as the other former teen actors in his age group, and for one reason or another, Hollywood stopped calling. 
Jonathan kept himself busy writing and directing, making short films in his apartment with his friends, but these shorts never took off anywhere for him. He auditioned for the part of Anakin Skywalker in Star Wars Episode II Attack of the Clones, during which time, already in his mid-twenties, was deemed too old to play the part. Anakin Skywalker would go on to be played by Hayden Christensen, who was five years younger than he. Like I've said multiple times throughout this episode, Jonathan was hardly the first actor to face this wave of disappointment and lack of roles and auditions. As I've said, it's usually the rule rather than the exception, and everyone handles that rejection differently. I know actors and others who have tried to make it in Hollywood who have either left Los Angeles to work in smaller markets like those in Ohio and Atlanta, where it's slightly less competitive to procure work, give up or go broke and move back home, some who abandon the field altogether for different lines of work, and some who don't want to leave but would prefer a steady paycheck who take up teaching the professions. All are viable options, and there are millions of ways to lead a happy, fulfilled life that don't involve being a famous actor or a famous anything in entertainment. It's very easy to forget that when you live in the town that was built on dreams. Unfortunately, when you get a taste of fame and or fortune, only to have it completely snatched away is devastating. Trigger warning going forward. The age of 27 is a tricky one for entertainers because of what's known as the 27 Club. This refers to artists, though its members are mostly musicians, that passed away for one reason or another at the age of 27. Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Anton Yelchin, Amy Winehouse, Basquiat, and Kurt Cobain are just a few of the members of this accursed club. Jonathan Brandis reportedly feared that he too would be part of its ranks one day. And he was right. At 11.40 p.m. on November 11, 2003, Jonathan Brandis was discovered hanging by a nylon rope in the hallway of his apartment on the 600 block of Detroit Street in Los Angeles. He was transported to Cedar sinai Hospital, where he died from his injuries the following day. He was 27 years old. Jonathan did not leave a suicide note, so no one truly knew what finally broke this poor man into doing what he did. After his death, friends reported that he was depressed about his waning career and was reportedly disappointed when his heart's roar role was significantly reduced. Jonathan had begun drinking heavily and had reportedly told others that he intended to kill himself. No one took him seriously. In 2021, Greg, Jonathan's father, told People Magazine his theory of why his son died by suicide. Quote, Jonathan was very smart and he was very polite and always easygoing. In a sad way, he was probably bipolar. His death wasn't due to the entertainment industry. I look back now and in his 20s, he showed signs of manic depression. I hope that anyone suffering can go get help. Because everything that's old is new again these days, especially when we've all had a year to sit at home and watch TV, Jonathan's career has had a resurgence with the Gen Z crowd. The film Ladybugs, the film that rocketed Jonathan to the front of Teen Idol magazines in 1992, appeared on Amazon Prime Video, where it was discovered by the youths of today and a new generation fell in love with the blue-eyed heartthrob. 
It's nice to see that while Jonathan has been widely forgotten by his industry at large, the films and projects he left behind make him impossible to forget. It also shows the power and withstanding influence of film and television. No matter how small your part may be, you can make a huge impact decades after a film's release. It's just a shame Jonathan wasn't here to see his resurgence. Back in March 2021, a documentary released on Hulu called Kid 90. Directed by Soleil Moon Fry of Punky Brewster fame, the documentary dealt with her experience with child stardom in the 1990s. The 70-minute documentary relies heavily on diaries she kept and video footage she took throughout this period, as well as modern interviews with her surviving fellow acting cohorts from the era. In the documentary, she talks about Jonathan, the closest that has ever come to a substantial documentary about him, and altogether it featured less than 10 sentences about him. The two actors had been close, and in preparation, she had listened to dozens of voicemails left by him on her answering machine. In the documentary, you can see the frustration from all of these former child actors and how fraught the road from child actor to adult actor can be and how they clung to each other for support. They were the only people in the world who could understand their plight, after all. Their struggles with identity and being sexualized at a very young age and being worried about whether they'll ever work again when they're only like 14, 15, 16 is a lot of adult feelings in those poor little baby undeveloped brains. At times, you can see in the documentary how passionate they most of them are about what they're doing, about the work they're doing and acting and how terrified they all are if that phone stops ringing. Soleil mentions in the documentary regret about not seeing that her friend needed help and that she carried guilt about his death for many years. Now she says that, quote, I feel him around more than ever and I carry his memories with me. Jonathan Brandis's life ended tragically because he felt he had no other way out and was, according to his father, likely suffering from mental illness. If you or anyone you know is having any kind of suicide ideations, take it seriously and make sure you or they get the help they need. Links are in the show notes. There is always another way. There is always hope. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. I'm an independent podcaster, so the only person working for me is me. So I need help to get the knowledge of me out there. If you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be an immense help. In order to keep making the podcast... I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I also got merch. Check that out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're going over the life and untimely death of one of my favorite actors and one of the most tragic stories in Hollywood history, River Phoenix. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.